Overcomers, uh, 1 John 5, 1 to 5. After this Sunday, we'll have two more Sundays, Lord willing, in Exodus. We'll wrap up our year and a half long study in Exodus. And then we will start, like I said, in July, July 30th, the Gospel of John. All right, um, here's the big idea. Those who have been born of God believe in Jesus Christ and overcome the world. Those who have been born of God believe in Jesus Christ and overcome the world. Lufkin just seemed smaller 35 years ago when I started playing baseball, and I know obviously it was smaller. But there were two kids growing up that were household names in Lufkin. And if you're old enough, you remember these kids because they went on to play D1 sports and they both became professional athletes. And I played travel ball with both of these guys. One was Reggie McNeil and the other was Robert Ray. Now, we, we played travel ball together, but we also played sandlot ball, which is when you just get all your friends together and you pick teams and you play tackle football or baseball. We grew up doing that. And you knew if you had either one of these two kids on your team, it was almost a certain victory. These guys were men among boys, Reggie McNeil and Robert Ray. I mean, they were just phenoms as kids. The stuff they did on the ball field, like, who are these guys? Right? They must be 25. No, they were kids. But you knew that if you're playing Sandlot and somehow you got picked by either Robert or Reggie, victory was almost guaranteed. It's, it's why, you know, the best of the best athletes in high school want to go to places like Clemson or Alabama, because victory is almost guaranteed. They win a lot. It's true. And A&M. Well, come on, I'll, I'll throw A&M in there. Again, the key word, though, with Robert and with Reggie and with Alabama and Clemson, the key word is almost. These teams do lose on occasion, right? But if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then victory is guaranteed. It's not almost. It is guaranteed. Victory over sin, death, and Satan. Only in Christ is this victory guaranteed. First John, I love First John. I've taught through First John multiple times. Uh, I've written Bible studies on First John. I love First John. It's a great letter. Who knows First John? Good. Okay. Well, get to know it if you don't. First John five. So we're going towards the end, but First John five one to five answers four, I would say, major questions related to faith. Number one, what is faith's object? Faith always has an object. It's faith in something or someone. So what is faith's object? We're going to see that in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 5. Number two, what is faith's source? Where does faith come from? Number three, what is faith's result? What does faith result in? And then number four, what is faith's victory? What is the victory of faith that John talks about? Let's start where John starts, and we're going to start with the object, the object of saving faith. So what is, number one, what is faith's object? Verse one, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So let's ask the most obvious question related to our passage. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Do you believe that today? Does it matter what we believe about Jesus? 
I've met people, yeah, of course I believe in Jesus, right? I mean, he was a kind teacher. He looked after, you know, widows and orphans and puppy dogs. And, but is that, is that sufficient? No, it matters what we believe about Jesus. And time and time again in Scripture, what is affirmed is that Jesus is the Christ. And I'll unpack what that means. Not his last name, by the way. Those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, our text says, have been born of God. So those who have been born again believe what exactly? What is this saving faith in? Namely, what is the object of saving faith? Here it is, that Jesus is the Christ. Now, what is being affirmed when we say that Jesus is the Christ? Now, this is very important. Because according to John 20, 31, our salvation is at stake concerning what we believe about Jesus. It matters what we believe about Jesus. We must believe the right things about Jesus. It's true? So what is being affirmed when we say Jesus is the Christ? Again, John 20, 31. Here's what's at stake. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is is the Christ. John is talking about the miracles of Jesus or his signs. John is saying, I've included these signs, these miracles, so that you might believe, namely, that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing that, you may have life, life in his name. First, let's make sure that we understand what the title Christ means, and then, then we'll look at four things, four things that are affirmed by this title, Christ, being applied to Jesus. So first, what does the title Christ mean? Christ, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, means Messiah or anointed one. And it refers to the promised king to come from whose line? From the line of David. The one whose kingdom would know no end. And whose appearing, when he came, when he finally came, would mean God's promise of rescue and restoration would come to fruition. The Messiah, according to the Old Testament, would be God's instrument of justice, God's instrument of rescue, the one through whom God would reign as king. He would represent God before the world. So when you think Messiah, think God's appointed king to rescue and represent, and just to condense it down even more, when you think Messiah, if you're taking notes, just put Savior King. He's the promised Savior King. Savior hyphen King. Secondly, what four things are affirmed or proclaimed by the announcement that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior King, the one promised from the Old Testament, the one that God would send to save the day, right? To rule and reign. So when we say He's Christ, what are we affirming? Four things. Number one, that we're not king. That's really important that you get that. When you say Jesus is king, you're affirming the fact that you're not king. Amen? Because there can't be two kings on the throne. You know, Jesus came to overthrow the lie of Satan in the garden. What did, what did that trickster say to Adam and Eve? Hey, if you, come here guys, hey, come here. If you disobey if you eat from the tree that God said don't eat from, you'll be just like God. Essentially, you'll be king. 
How did that work out for Adam and Eve? Not so good. Thank you, Graham. Graham, can I say one more thing about Graham? Bro, this guy knows the Bible, and I was so encouraged by you, brother. All right, we're not king. Number two, Jesus is the Savior King. He's Lord. He's the promised one to reveal God to us and to bring us back to God through his death. So we're not king, number one. That's what's affirmed. Number two, when we say Jesus is the Christ, we're saying he's the Savior King. He's the one promised in the Old Testament to come and save the day to rescue God's people. Number three, God is faithful. That's easy to miss. When we say that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior King, we are affirming that God is what? He's faithful because God promised to send a Savior King. The Savior King has come. Praise God for his faithfulness. And number four, we're going to dig into this. And this will be hard for some of us, I think, but it's good. Those who believe this great truth have been born of God. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, it points to something that's happened in the past. You've been born of God. And we're going to unpack that here. So John, the beloved disciple, he wrote 1 John. John connects two things together multiple times in our five verses. Faith, everybody say faith. Okay, and the new birth. Everybody say new birth. New birth. Faith and new birth. All right, so this brings us to our next point, our second question. What is faith's source? Where does this saving faith come from? The object is Jesus, right? Believing that Jesus is the, he's the Christ. He's the Savior King. But where does this saving faith come from? Now, some may be too quick to respond by saying, it comes from me. I believe, yes, but the Bible is clear that saving faith does not originate with us. It cannot due to our sinful condition. Now, in order to answer the second question, where does saving faith come from? Let's start by looking at the doctrine of total depravity. And then we're going to look at what John doesn't say in verse 1. Who's ever heard of total depravity? Is that a good thing? Is it a good thing that we're totally depraved? No. Now, this does not mean total depravity, that we're utterly depraved, meaning that we're as wicked as we possibly could be. That's not what it means. Instead, total depravity refers to our inability. Everybody say inability. It refers to our inability due to our sinful heart. We're born with a sinful heart. So it refers to our inability due to our sinful heart to submit to God or to turn to him in faith. Because we are spiritually dead, we are unable to come to Jesus without the miraculous and gracious work of God. Sinful man does not seek God because he's not able to. The Bible is clear on that. Let me give you a few passages. First is Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Paul writes, and you were dead. <coughs> what do dead people do? Nothing, because they're, they're dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom, not some of us, but among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Romans 3.11, now he's quoting from the Old Testament, from the Psalms here, but he says, no one understands, no one seeks for God. None of us do, right? None of us naturally seek God. Romans 8.7, now listen to the language. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. It can't. Everybody say, it can't. The sinful mind cannot submit to God's law. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this age has blinded, blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see. What can't they do? They can't see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The main point here in understanding that we are born sinful, naturally opposed to God, and are therefore incapable of believing apart from, apart from the Spirit's work of divine grace and regeneration. Everybody say regeneration. Okay, that's the new birth. Let's talk about regeneration. Again, let me summarize. We are naturally incapable of faith. We need a miracle to believe. We need a miracle, a work of God in our hearts to move us to faith. One brother writes, this is such a good quote. He says, conversion, conversion is a change so dramatic that it requires the intervention of God the Holy Spirit. It requires that. In conversion, the Spirit of God grants the twin graces of repentance and faith to sinners. This is seen in Lydia's conversion. Lydia was in Philippi, and listen to her conversion story. This is Acts 16, verse 14. It says, The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Before she could respond, what had to happen? The Lord had to open her heart. Now, the term regeneration is used to refer to the Holy Spirit's divine and gracious work of new birth. The work promised in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove the heart of stone, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you. So now that we understand the problem, which is what? Total what? Depravity. Because of sin, we are incapable. We cannot respond to God in faith because we're dead. That's the problem. We've covered the problem. Let's now move on to the solution, which is what? Regeneration. Now, the word order. Oh my goodness, read the text. The word order of verse 1 is extremely important for understanding the doctrine of regeneration. Verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, what does John not say? What doesn't John say in verse 1? He doesn't say, and this is subtle, he doesn't say everyone who has been born of God has believed. As if to say that us being born of God is the result of our faith. Everybody say no. He doesn't say that. We cannot believe apart from the new birth, apart from the miraculous and gracious work of the Spirit in us. We cannot believe until, everybody say until, until we are first 
born again. The new birth, regeneration, comes before or precedes faith. Regeneration is the act of God that moves us to believe in Jesus. As Piper says, this was a helpful quote in his giant book. I'm almost done with it. I have like 120 pages left. Providence. It's a monster. But he says this. He was walking through 1 John 5.1. He says, and I agree, the tenses, the tenses of the verbs matter. Believes, believes is in the present tense and refers to our ongoing trust in Jesus. Has been born is in the perfect tense and refers to a past act with ongoing effect. This means that the new birth brings about belief and not the other way around. So what comes before faith? The new birth. Again, what can the dead not do? They can't believe. We must be made alive before we can believe. Apart from the divine work of the Spirit on our hard, dead hearts, we are unable to believe. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, and no one can say, no one can say, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Three times. How many? Three times in these five verses, John mentions the new birth. Has been born of God. And it's found in the passive. What does that mean, the passive? It means that it refers to something that is done to us. We're on the receiving end rather than something that we do. So do we make ourselves born again? No, it's done to us. By who? By the Spirit. So the new birth is something that God miraculously does in us or to us. Remember, the spiritually dead are unable to respond to God. We need to be made alive. Now, what of the second half of verse 1? And this brings us to our third question. Number three, what is faith's result? Or you could say, what is the evidence of faith? Or what is the fruit of faith? But again, using one word here, what is faith's result? Faith results in love for God and love for God's people. Faith results in love for God and love for God's people. Loving God and loving God's church, his people are inseparable. Amen? Would you agree with that? It'd be like saying, I love the head, but I hate the body. Does that work? No. Verse 1, the second half, in everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So if you love the Father, you love those who have been born of God. Amen? If you love God, you love God's people, his regenerate ones, those who believe and trust in Jesus. So loving God and loving the church are inseparable. 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, and brother there refers to a fellow Christian, right, in the church. So listen to what John says. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's, That's logical. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If you love God, you must love your fellow believer, your fellow brother or sister in Christ. So loving God, okay, get that, loving God's children, got that. 
go hand in hand. Got it? Loving God, loving God's people, his children, his church, go, they go hand in hand. They're inseparable and are made possible by the new what? The new birth, regeneration. True saving faith results in obedience to King Jesus. We ended with that last week in Exodus, right? We saw that we are able to obey by the Spirit. Who brings about the new birth? The, the Spirit. And the Spirit makes us alive to trust in Jesus. And those who trust in Jesus will give evidence of that trust by loving God and loving fellow believers. John drives this point home in the very next verse, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God. Now, this is, again, I don't think you would have expected the word order here. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. That just sounds off, but it's not. One, because it's God's word, but I think you'll see what John's doing here. The word order of verse 2 appears strange. It's surprising, but it shouldn't be why. One might expect John to say, by this we know that we love God, when we love the children of God and obey his commandments. But instead he says, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. Everybody say, those who love God, love what God loves. There it is. Those, you know, say it again. Those who love God, love what God loves. God loves his church. Amen? He loves his church, his children, his redeemed and rescued people. And the more you love God, listen to this, the more you love God, the more you grow in that love, the more you will grow to love what God loves. I remember uh, there was some work at our house a few months ago. We had a plumbing issue outside, and I was trying to share the gospel with these two young guys, and I was asking them some questions, and we got to the church, and one of the guys said, I go to church, love my church. The other guy said, I hate the church. I don't go to church. I love Jesus. And I said, bro, do you know who loves the church? And he said, you? And I said, well, I do, but do you know who else? Jesus. And I quoted Ephesians 5.25. Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And his head exploded. Not really, but he was like, wow. I don't think he'd heard that. If you're a husband, raise your hand. I've used this illustration before, but husbands, imagine. Imagine, Travis, someone saying to you, bro, I love you, but I can't stand your wife. Those are fighting words, right? You would not be okay with that. That would not honor you. I would take offense if someone, Chris, I love you, but I can't stand Haley. What? <laughs> no, I would take offense to that. You'd be angry. I'd be angry, and rightfully so, because you and your wife are, you're one. Christ has joined himself with the church. They are his people, his bride, his body. To say that you don't love the church or hate the church is to hate Christ because he indwells his people by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Furthermore, this is the last part of that verse. To ob- now, this is tricky, but listen. To obey God's commandments, to obey God's commandments is to love the children of God since the commandments of God call us to love God's children. And not only that, but they show us how. Amen? One more time. 
to obey God's commandments is to love God's children, since God's commandments call us to do what? To love God's children. And they don't just call us to do that, they show us how. Amen? Without the Word, without the Bible, where we have God's commandments, we wouldn't know how to love one another. The new birth, as seen in true saving faith, moves us to want to obey God's commandments. This is the result of true faith, what I'll call new birth faith. Now, what is John saying? What is John saying? The result of saving faith, the result of saving faith, new birth faith or regeneration faith, is love for God, okay? Love for God's people, okay? And obedience to his commandments, okay? And as you prayed, brother, Pastor Aaron, we don't love God love fellow believers, and obey his commandments to get right with God. No. We get right with God by faith, which is the result of regeneration, and the evidence of that faith, what that faith produces is love for God, love for his people, and obedience to his commandments. Now, we talked about this, children, at camp. We talked about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments may be summarized as love for God and love for others, right? Remember that, kiddos? The new covenant, the new covenant promises transformation by the Spirit with the result being obedience to God, namely love for God and love for God's people. Now, if you know your Old Testament, Israel got it wrong a lot, didn't they? We get it wrong too, but they got it wrong a lot. They had God's law, but they couldn't do it. What was the diagnosis that the prophets gave? Why couldn't they obey God's law? They had it. They knew what to do because their hearts were what? Hard. Their necks were what? Stubborn or crooked. They needed a new what? Not physically, but a, a, a new what? A new inner man. They needed God's spirit. They needed inner transformation. And the new covenant promised not just forgiveness, but transformation. New Godward desires springing from a new heart and the indwelling Spirit of God. One more time, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. God says, I'm going to give you a new heart. Yes. I'm going to put my Spirit within you. Right? I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new Spirit. I'm going to take out the heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And I'm going to put my Spirit in you and move you. I'm going to move you by my Spirit and with that new heart to obey my commands and keep my law. Oh! What has to happen first? We need an inner transformation. An inner transformation. You know, Jesus clearly has these passages in mind in the New Testament. John 3, Luke 22. So John 3, 5, which we'll cover soon. John 3, 5, this is with Jesus and Nicodemus. Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then Luke 22, verse 20, and likewise, this is the Lord's Supper, and likewise the cup, after they'd eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What Jesus was doing through his death would be to accomplish the new covenant promises of God. And what did the new covenant promise? A new heart, forgiveness. I'm going to write my law on your hearts What Jesus would accomplish through his death and resurrection 
would purchase and secure the new covenant promises for his people, a new heart and God's indwelling spirit, and thus the power to obey God's word, the power to love one another in God's church sacrificially and voluntarily for the glory of God. This is the language of regeneration. John Piper, one more time, he says, the new covenant promises regeneration. Again, the new covenant is that promise in Ezekiel 36. I'm going to give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. Jeremiah 31, I'm going to forgive you, write my law in your hearts. I'm going to do something inside of you. What do we, we need an inner transformation, amen? So Piper writes, the new covenant promises regeneration. It promises to create faith and love and obedience where before there was only hardness. All of these passages that I've read touch on God's promise to overcome our total depravity, our spiritual deadness, our hard-heartedness by removing. Everybody say removing. Good. Removing our old, hard, stony heart so as to reconcile and renew a people for himself. This is the message of 1 John. And this is further supported in verse 3. Oh, verse 3 is money. Are you ready? Verse 3 is so good. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And what does he see next? His commandments are not what? They're not burdensome. How's that? How's that? His commandments are not burdensome? When you think of the word burden, you think of something heavy, you're carrying it, like it's, it's weighing you down. Oh, it's a burden. I don't want to do it, right? But Listen to what John says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. What enables John to say that the commandments of God, and what are they? How do we summarize them? Loving God, loving his people, right? <laughs> what enables John to say that his commandments, the commandments of God, are not burdensome? The difficulty of verse 3 is answered by verse 1 and verse 4. Has been born of God. It's the new birth. What makes his commandments no longer burdensome? It's the new what? The new birth or regeneration. The Spirit. Everybody say the Spirit. Okay, good. The Spirit. The Spirit brings about new desires through his regenerating work in our hearts. The promise of Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, is the promise of a new heart with new desires and the indwelling Spirit of God for the purpose of obeying God's Word. Faith in Jesus Christ, produced through regeneration, results in love for God, love for God's people, and the life of obedience. This is the evidence and assurance of faith. Now, if you studied 1 John, those are the two major themes. Evidence and and assurance. He wants God's people to see evidence of Christ at work in them because people had left, right? They'd, there'd been this mass exodus in the church. People had left. They'd, they'd followed false teachers. I can imagine. I mean, maybe your mom leaves or your brother leaves. You're sad. You're discouraged. John writes so that they'll have assurance so that they'll know that they belong to the people of God. He points them to evidence, the evidence of faith. And what, are the, what is the evidence of faith? What does faith result in? Love for God, love for God's church, and obedience to God's word. And then lastly, we have the wonderful promise of faith, the hope tied to our faith, 
The final question, number four, what is faith's victory? What is faith's victory? Verses four and five, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. You should be excited with that. Amen? Listen, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. So what is faith's victory? Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So three times, how many? Three times, John speaks of the believer overcoming the world. What does this mean? What does this refer to? What makes it so? First, who are the ones that overcome the world? Who are they? Who are the ones that overcome the world, church? Who are they? Believers. According to verses 4 and 5, they're the ones who have been born of God, who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Second, what does this mean? I'm an overcomer. Ooh. What does that mean? I don't know. I mean, I mean, I mean what does it mean to overcome the world? 1 John 2. Let's go back. 1 John 2, 13 and 14. John writes, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome, there's the verb again, nikao, you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you're strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have, one more time, overcome the evil one. Well, who has overcome the evil one? Christ. Christ has overcome the evil one through his life, death, and resurrection. And that victory is a reality for those who are in Christ, represented by Christ, by faith. Now, the Greek is really helpful here. Let me, let me nerd out just for a second. In 1 John 2, 13 to 14, the verb to overcome is found in the perfect tense, okay? So the perfect tense in Greek is used to refer to something that happened in the past, but the effects of that past event are still felt in the present, that's crazy. So something happened in the past, and the effects of that event are still felt now in our present. You know, Satan, you know what Satan means, Satan? Accuser. Satan will continue to accuse, but for those who are in Christ, he has nothing to accuse us with. Amen? He's like, he's like a prosecuting attorney in the court of law with absolutely no evidence to support his claims. Whereas Christ, who is our advocate, our defense attorney, he is our evidence. His righteousness is applied to us, and we are therefore righteous before God. Here's the point. We, everybody say we, if you're a Christian, we, we, one, two, three, we have overcome the evil one because of what Christ did to thousand years ago, and that victory is still true. The effects of that victory are still true today because the righteous king still represents his people before the Father. Amen? Recall 1 John four seventeen: As he is, so also are we in the world. Oh. Here we see that so 1 John 4.4, 4. again, overcome is a massive theme in 1 John. 1 John 4.4, 4. little children, you are from God and have overcome them, 
for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Who's familiar with that passage? Probably the second half, right? He who is in us is greater than he that's in the world. But the first part says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Who are them? Or who are they? (laughs) Here we see that believers have overcome them. And them, in 1 John 4, is the spirit of the Antichrist at work through the false teachers that were wreaking havoc on God's church. Here we see that believers have overcome them on the basis of the indwelling Spirit of God. Now, how have they overcome them? By not accepting their false teachings. The, everybody say the evidence. Okay, good. The evidence that the believers have overcome the spirit of the Antichrist at work through false teachers is that they have the Holy Spirit, the one who seals those who embrace the gospel. Who does the Holy Spirit seal and indwell? Those who embrace the true gospel message. So in our passage today, in 1 John 5, 4-5, John says that the believer in Christ overcomes the world. Here, John uses the present tense, and in Greek, the present tense denotes ongoing or continuous action. So John uses the present tense for the verb to overcome two times, and the object is no longer the evil one, but the world. We've overcome the world. What is John getting at here? Everybody say the world. Okay, good. The world stands for that which is opposed to God. The values and the teachings and the attitudes that are opposed to the true king. The world stands for the breeding ground of temptation for the believer. John is saying that those who have been born of God, who have true faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior King, will continually overcome the trappings of the evil one. They will overcome the world's attempts to steal, kill, and destroy. And all God's people said, Man, what a blessing, what a promise. Those who have been born again to believe in Jesus will overcome the world. Again, the one who overcomes the world is the one who believes. And the one who believes is the one who has been supernaturally born of God, regenerated. Let's put these two things together. New birth and faith. Because of Christ's saving work and the application of that work in our hearts, in our trust in him, the power of sin has been broken in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. We no longer treasure the things of this world, but rather we treasure Jesus as king. This truth is what allows John to say, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Now, who else has overcome the world? Who else has overcome? Who, who overcame the world first? John sixteen thirty three. John 16, I have said these things to you, Jesus said, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Our victory over the world is contingent upon our union with Christ. If you belong to Jesus, which is evidenced by your confession that he is king and the indwelling Holy Spirit, then you have and will continue to overcome the the world. You've won! You've won! Again, think evidence and assurance. If you're overcoming the world, its deceitful messages and its satanic attacks, this is evidence that you've been born of God. 
you can have assurance that you're his. Here we have the promise of perseverance. The born-again believer, trusting in Jesus and indwelt by the Spirit, will persevere. They will overcome the world till the end. Amen? You know, the, the Greek word used for victory and conquer, do you know it? It's Nike. Nike. Who owns a pair of Nikes? Wow, just a few of you. I still own some Nikes. The Greek word used for both victory and conquer is Nike. The Greek verb is nikao. This was the name of the Greek goddess of victory, speed, strength. John wants the church to know that those who believe in Jesus have victory. Namely, that they have overcome the world and will continue to overcome the world. Are you an overcomer? I'm not going to sing. Are you an overcomer? Do you have victory over sin, death, and Satan? What's the evidence for this assurance? Four things here. Number one, the overcomer has faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we see in our passage, number one. Number two, the overcomer has the Holy Spirit. That's the second thing. Number three, the overcomer is united to and represented by the conquering king, Jesus Christ. So number one, the overcomer has faith in Jesus Christ. Number two, the overcomer has the Holy Spirit. Number three, the overcomer is united to and represented by the conquering king, Jesus Christ. And number four, the, over, the overcomer continues to say no to the world and yes to the gospel, God's word. The overcomer continues to say no to the world and yes to the gospel, God's word. All right, let me, let me just finish up by summarizing the four questions and their answers quickly. Number one, what is faith's object? Jesus as Christ, Jesus as Savior King. Have you trusted in Jesus as the Savior King? Have you got off the throne? Have you acknowledged, and again, I use that image for repentance. To step off the throne is to say, God, I'm not king. If I rule my life, it's going to lead to hell, eternal destruction. Jesus, you're the king. You made a way. You're the Savior. So what is faith's object? Number one, Jesus as Christ, as Savior King. Number two, what is faith's source? The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit moves those who are spiritually dead to believe in Jesus through the hearing of the gospel. Amen? One more time. What is faith's source? The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. What comes before faith? Regeneration. And who does that? The Spirit. Number three, what is faith's result? What does true saving faith result in? If you've been born again to believe, what should your life look like? Again, you're not saved by doing these things. You're saved to do these things. Love God, love God's church, and obey his what? His word, his commandments. Good. That's faith's result. Number four, what is faith's victory? Everyone. Everybody say everyone. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God overcomes the world. Faith's victory is perseverance. You will persevere to the end. Do you have assurance? Do you have assurance? Is this evidence present in your own life? Again, let's start with the most basic and fundamental question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior King? If not, trust in Jesus as your Savior King today. Step off the throne, repent, turn from sin, 
Turn from the sin of pride and unbelief. Get off the throne and put your faith in Jesus, who is the Savior King, who lived the life we could not live, died the death we deserve on the cross, and rose again to save sinners. Ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior today. Again, the new birth results in faith and transformation. Are you marked? Are you marked by faith in Jesus as King? And has your life been transformed as seen in your love for God, your love for fellow church members, in your obedience to God's word. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge today that without Christ, without the work of regeneration, without the Spirit coming in and opening our eyes, our dead, lifeless eyes, and giving us new birth, we would have no hope. We would be helpless and hopeless We acknowledge as a church body that we are saved by grace. Nothing that we've done, nothing that we've conjured up, nothing that we've said, it's only because of Christ. Jesus, you lived, you died, you rose again. And Jesus, you and the Father send the Spirit in grace to resurrect dead sinners through the preaching of the gospel, to trust in Jesus and turn from sin. And we thank you that the gospel provides not just forgiveness of sin, but inner transformation so that by the Spirit who now indwells your people, we can love you, God. We can love your church and we can obey your commands. Help us to love you more. Help us to love each other more. And help us to obey your commands with joy to know that your commands are not burdensome because of the Spirit that we have inside of us. And we thank you for the hope of our faith that you promise in your word that those who believe Those who have been born again will overcome the world to the very end. I pray that we would await your return, Jesus, that we would long for your return. But until then, help us to be found faithful, to live for your glory and the good of each other. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.